Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly, co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold, and co-host Army National Guard veteran Sean Claiborne. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. Welcome back to America's Heroes Group, this time with our roundtable and our partner, VETS, that is Veterans Employment and Training Service. October is Breast Cancer, Mental Health, and National Disability and Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Today is Saturday, October 22nd, 2022. Our host is Cliff Kelly. I'm Sean Cleveland, the co-host, Army National Guard veteran. Our executive producer is Glenda Smith, and our digital media producer is Ivan Ortega of Scouts Honor Productions. And we have our panelists on the line, a very distinguished gentleman, Julian Purdy. He's a U.S. Army Reserve, non-commissioned officer, NCO, veteran, and chief of staff of the Veterans Employment and Training Service in the U.S. Department of Labor. I must say, my one of my most favorite government agencies. Yeah, I said that. So then now, we're going to talk about underserved populations, HBCUs, and the Good Jobs Initiative. How are you doing? Doing great. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. You have a lot of stuff on your resume. We want to talk about some of the things that are going on with jobs and labor and also some of the things you're doing with the, the Veterans Affairs Committee. Committee. So tell us about underserved populations, HCBUs, um, that's the story of historical black colleges um, and universities, and also what are you doing for jobs for veterans? All right. So that's a, a very loaded question. So let's start with the underserved population. And so what we're doing is we're defining that in the broadest terms possible. So we're looking at anybody who has been underrepresented, underserved in America, and we're pulling those groups out and definitely making concerted efforts to reach them and service them better. Um, so what we're talking about is those who are in rural areas, those across all racial cohorts. Uh, we're talking about women veterans. We're also talking about veterans who are facing different economic challenges, such as those who are underemployed and those who are facing housing instability. So when you're working with the Veterans Affairs, you participate in conceptualizing laws, so basically creating laws, coming up with the ideas of what needs to be done um, in military transition, employment, educational and vocational training, home loans and homelessness. How difficult is it to affect laws? Sure. So I, I think when we're talking about uh, the laws and some of the work that I've done in regards to statutes around the economic opportunities for veterans, where we're talking about my most former role, where I was on the uh, House of Veteran Affairs Committee, the Economic Opportunity Subcommittee specifically. And so for us to really change the landscape, it was difficult. Uh, as you probably know, Congress is a, a very Byzantine uh, entity. Um, there's a lot of rules and personnel that you have to go through to get anything across the finish line. But I will say, even in these times right now, and, and I think we all see the landscape of America, but both sides still agree that we must do what we can for our nation's heroes. So uh, while many other issues that are in Congress right now are stuck in gridlock and argument, the support for veterans always remained. And I was lucky enough to be on that Veteran Affairs Committee um, and push some great efforts through support veterans. So what are some of the legislation you've been able to, to affect 
so far as far as getting um, more opportunity for, for people to have jobs, and which really changes the whole economic landscape for us as a society. We, right now we're going through a phase in our economy where we have crazy inflation going on. Part of the problem, or if you want to call it a problem, Federal Reserve sees it as a problem, but that's a whole other story, is the fact that we have such low um, unemployment. But that is a different conversation when we're talking about having um, living wages. Mm-hmm. So what types of laws and things are, uh, have been able to affect the, to try to improve? Uh, well, first of all, because we're talking about a market, right? We're talking about how how the market actually dictates or determines whether or not a person gets X, Y, Z wage versus ABC wage. How, do, can you, how can you make a law that actually helps that situation where a person gets a fair wage? Yeah, so that's a little bit outside of the, the bailiwick of the Veteran Affairs Committee. It's more so in the Ed and Labor Committee in the House and the, uh, uh, the Health Committee, which is the Housing, Employment, Labor, and Pension Committee in the Senate. And so some of the things that they're looking at is how can we make sure that the labor standards that are the landscape of the country are upheld. Uh, we have the federal uh, laws that govern labor, and that is the bottom level. That is the floor. You can't go underneath that. But then each state and each locality can make their own laws and rules around what someone can be paid as a minimum wage. Um, you'll see in a lot of major metropolitan areas, the minimum wage is quite high. You know, it's above that $15 an hour that President Biden is really advocating for across the country. But then you see some states where the minimum wage is actually that federal minimum wage. And oftentimes, uh, and you're probably aware of this as well, many people realize that that is no longer a livable wage for many people around the country. The unfortunate thing is, again, going back to that gridlock I spoke of, for that federal minimum wage to change, you need some consensus and you need Congress to agree to make that happen. Mm. Now, correct me if I'm your grandfather was a Buffalo soldier, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So when, so how did, how is that history of service? Because you think about the Buffalo soldiers, and that's, a, to me, a, a phenomenal story. Um, African-American men particularly serving a country that where they still didn't have 100% freedom or, or, or get the, got a chance to enjoy the rights of the main population. Oftentimes even having to serve west of the Mississippi River because of the fact that they would get attacked or even by civilian populations when they're sworn in to protect and serve and defend the Constitution of the United States. So not even so being being essentially uh, uh, finding aggressors from within your own nation. So how is that that legacy uh, um, led to your dedication to your work? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I'll, and I'll first start by saying that my grandfather told me a story of when he uh, was stationed at Fort Huachuca. And interestingly enough, my father was stationed at Fort Huachuca, and I was later stationed at Fort Huachuca myself. Hmm. Um, and so when my grandfather uh, retorted this story, he mentioned that he was not allowed to live on the main post itself. Him and the other African-American soldiers had to make a camp outside of the post while the other officers and enlisted were able to live in hard buildings on the actual base itself. So, you know, that kind of shaped my framework as I was going into the military, but it didn't diminish, you know, my passion to serve and to support the country. Um, I think even looking back at history around World War II times, 
you know, there was that double B campaign where we're trying to get a victory abroad and then have a victory at home. And I think oftentimes it's lost how much U.S. veterans came back home and supported the civil rights campaigns throughout history. Um, and so I think, you know, not only do I have a duty to serve the country as a calling of mine, but I still must continue to do that work even after I serve. So whether supporting my brothers, sisters, and arms, but also fighting for equity and justice across the landscape of America as well. So what are some of the specific things you guys have done for the Department of Labor, particularly for the historically black colleges and universities? Yeah, so I, I will say that we are lucky to have some really great leadership right now with Secretary uh, Marty Walsh and Deputy Secretary Julie Sue, who have really empowered me to take some of this work on. And so one of the things that we've done is we've created what we're calling the HBCU summits. And so we are visiting, uh, well, we've already visited three HBCUs in the summer, and we brought with us the full force of the Department of Labor. So we had representation from many different agencies coming onto the campus to talk to students and let them know what are really the different job opportunities that exist for the Department of Labor. And then while we're there, you know, having some of these one-on-one -on -one conversations, we also have a larger program in place where we're helping break down that USA jobs process. Because for many people, even myself as an adult, after I left the uh, military, that was a struggle for me, getting through USA jobs, trying to get, you know, just at least uh, an interview uh, was a hard thing. So we well, actually first broke back it down. Up, explain to us, for a lot of people that don't know about USA jobs, explain what that is a little bit. Sure. So USA jobs is the, the federal employment portal. So anybody seeking a job within the federal government, uh, outside of a few small special cases, has to go through USA jobs. Um, and in that, each job, you have to provide a very unique resume for that specific position. Um, and then you are kind of waiting and seeing on whether you're selected to go to different rounds in the interview process. Um, sometimes you may go for months without hearing anything. Um, and sometimes for people without that awareness, that could be uh, a frustration that leads you not to go back and apply again and again and again, because most people do not get selected on their first time. So we really try to break down what that process looks like from the HR perspective on our side of the fence for those students so they have a better understanding of when they're applying for federal jobs. And what kind of success have you seen from your work so far? So we, we have uh, have some students apply. Um, we haven't necessarily had any students who have come on board yet. Uh, we are talking to students who are still in college right now. So. A lot of them aren't ready for that full-time career just yet, but we are at least excited that some of them are applying for some short-term opportunities like internships, um, and which that is something we want to kind of expand within the Department of Labor as well. Our program is very limited right now, but again, being empowered by our leadership, we're going to try to expand that and do more for college students. Now, a few years ago, you participated in a conference at the University of Chicago. That was the, I have my notes here, there was the Veterans Symposium, the second part, part two of Removing Barriers to Access. So that was, at, that was in March of 2021. What were some of the things you learned at that symposium? Because you wanted the key speakers there. And then how have you applied what you've learned to what you're doing at the Department of Labor? Yeah, so I think one of the barriers that we, we learned about and, and we heard from some of the folks at the symposium is sometimes we have to break through some of the 
stigma and or trauma that folks have faced in the military to make sure we can meet them and deliver our message properly. Actually, at the symposium itself, I spoke of trauma that I faced while I was in the military, which led me not to have a full career. Um, I, I don't necessarily have to go into too much of that right now, but I will say that, you know, not everybody leaves the military with, you know, a sunny disposition of the federal government and how the military works. You said what? We said well, they don't leave the military with what? I didn't get that part. Of a, a sunny disposition. Okay. Or, you know, about the, the military or how the federal government works. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we have to let everybody know that sometimes these things are isolated incidences and there's opportunities for you to succeed even when you face adversity. Hmm. I think that's really important that people have to understand that, you know, it's, it is hard for civilian people. I remember I had an incident when I was in college <clears throat> where my mind just wasn't there. I was When I got back from AIT, I didn't know what was going on with me. I couldn't understand, like, how, I, what I was thinking or how, what I was going through. I was just going through motions, it seemed like. I was getting up every day and doing PT at 4.30 in the morning. Um, I was, you know, I was trying to go to class. I couldn't focus in class. and I ended up just dropping all my classes. And um, a teacher just went off me one day because she's like, you missed, like, a whole bunch of classes. You know, what's wrong with you, whatever? You're going to fail this class. You're going to drop out of school. What are you going to do? And she just went off, and that triggered something in me. Um, I didn't do anything, like, rash or didn't react in a negative way. But, and I still had not quite figured out what was going on with me psychologically, like, why I couldn't function quite 100%. Because all I did was go to EIT for all I knew. I mean, I was... On Sunday night, I left uh, Fort Jackson. Monday morning, I was back in class. So I think so, so having civilians understand what it's like to go through that military process and some of the things, imagine, so what I went through and just going through training, imagine a person who's gone through a tour of duty or going through a deployment. You know, So that being that being said, you know, it seems like there's a lot of things that civilians can learn from the military population, and it's good that you're doing these types of work, especially these types of symposiums you did at University of Chicago, the type of work you're doing at, you know, the Department of Labor, but try to get people to understand um, and also help students understand when they're going through these processes. Because nobody explained to me that, hey, you might have, you know, you might feel like a fish out of water when you come back, come back home. Or, you know, things might be a little bit different, you know, because you're in this regiment and you're doing this, you're doing that, and then you're being told what to do every day, and it's, it's an intense environment, then all of a sudden you go back to civilian life, and it's going to be a whole different thing. You know, nobody explained to me that that might be something that my mind might go through or, or touch, you know. So my question to you is, you know, um, so when you're looking at the, the work that you're doing as far as legislation, you know, what types of laws or what types of things need to be done um, as far as projects in the future from the Department of Labor to try to address these issues, particularly when it comes to we're talking about equity and opportunity for employment. Yeah, so I think you brought a really great point, and I just want to touch on that for a little bit. You know, when folks are transitioning out, you know, whether it's reserves, National Guard, active duty, I feel like the process is all the same. I'm a, a reservist myself. I served for eight years, and Every time I left active duty, there was a little bit of a rub. You know, the military lifestyle is very different from the civilian lifestyle. And I think we have a really great opportunity within the Department of Labor to liaise and to really teach and inform those in the business community what it means to provide not only opportunities for veterans, but also in a climate where veterans can thrive. And so... Uh, we have a higher veterans medallion program, um, and we're actually getting ready to go into the season where we have an award ceremony for that. 
but that recognizes organizations that support veterans by making sure they have at least 7% within their workforce and they retain 75% year to year. But part of that award also for these large companies requires them to have a veterans affinity group within that workforce. So it allows veterans to meet each other, be peer-to-peer coaches for each other, and kind of you know take some of that edge off of that rough transition that most people face. As you said yourself, going from Sunday to Monday, you know, it's a whole different lifestyle change, but not a lot of people can imagine that. And so sometimes it takes another person who's been through that experience to help shepherd you through it. Hmm. So, so what do you see of the future? What's, what are some of the future projects the Department of Labor is working on in that same area? Yeah, so one of the things we're working on right now is we have the off-base uh, transition training pilot. And so what we're doing is we're providing some of the uh, same curriculum information resources that are available in the transition assistance program for those who are transitioning out of the military um, outside of the base. So those people can find those resources in local communities. Uh, Also what we're doing is uh, more recently, we've embarked upon a study, um, and this is gonna hit to your diversity question as well, uh, looking at what does it mean for certain cohorts of veterans once they transition. We right now, we look at certain economic metrics, see how everybody is doing. But those economic metrics don't always tell the story. And so we want to do a more holistic study on veterans to see what's happening. Hmm. So then now, do you see the road ahead as bright as far as getting people to understand and to help veterans um, find suitable employment but also transition easier? What things, and also part two of the question would be also what things need to be done um, could you recommend at the, at the, uh, for, for the Veterans Administration or even in the civilian world to make that transition easier? Yeah, I think one thing that can make the transition easier, again, is just having resources in the community and knowing how to navigate those resources. Um, I believe the metric is often quoted that there are over 4,400 nonprofit organizations that provide services to veterans. Um, and that's across the country. But then if you go to a Pacific community, there's still most likely hundreds of nonprofit organizations that are thriving in that particular environment. And so as a veteran, how do you know which one to go to, uh, which one is going to be adequate for your Pacific needs? So I think us making sure we can have great connections to those in the community, those who have wraparound services, local government, because they also provide services and programs as well, um, that's going to be a big help. I think also with that as well is, again, educating and informing the business community on why this is important. I like that idea of educating the business community. I think that's something that's really important. Um, a lot of people have the idea, it seems like with employers particularly, um, that the skills that you learn in the military are not necessarily transferable into the civilian world. Can you speak to that a little bit, and then um, and is, that, is that really is that a myth, or is that something that's really is that something that's had some kind of truth to it? So I've heard that time and time again that those skills don't uh, necessarily translate from the military side to the civilian side. And I'll just give you a quick example of one job that most people overlook, and that's you know being somebody within the infantry. Um, everybody looks at that as, hey, you're on the front lines, you're shooting guns. What can you bring to this office environment? 
but people neglect the soft skills that are needed to be in the industry. You need to be a team leader. You need to be able to be attention to detail. You need to be able to uh, make sure you can guide and also be able to think on your feet. I mean, there's no other more dynamic situation than a battlefield. So when things happen, you're thinking on the fly, you're communicating with your team, and you're getting things done. Why would you not want that to be in your workforce? You know, so those are the kind of skills, again, we need to make sure everybody understands that people are training year and year out in the military so we can make sure we thrive in those environments. But in doing so, there are other more technical skills that do have more of a direct translation. So if someone is working in the cybersecurity space, sure, they can go right into that career. But the one thing that's also missing sometimes is the certification and credentialing process. Someone may be doing that job in the cybersecurity space for years, but when they go to the civilian side, they say, hey, you don't have enough experience. Well, you can't get more secure than the federal government, I would say, but how do companies recognize that you adopt credentialing licensing? Um, So that's one nut we're trying to crack right now, but I will say we are trying to do better and making sure those in service do get that credentialing licensing necessary to be recognized by the civilian sector. So what drives you every day to do the, the work that you do at the Department of Labor, Labor um, uh, Department of Labor? Because it seems like it's a very trying job from, from looking at it from the outside. It seems like there's a lot of pressure. And like I said, like there, um, there's a lot of things you really can't control. You're trying to affect things around you, but you don't necessarily, you're not like you're, not like you're a ruler and you can just go in there and, and de- a decree this be done. You have to work within the confines and the variables that you're dealing with. So how do you deal with that every day? Yeah, and you know what, and I'll take this back to the battle space. You know, we have to look at what's available to us resource-wise, who's around us, and then we start working within those confines. Um, so who are we working with? And that's usually the business environment and the business community. So how do we talk to them to make sure our message meets them where they are? Because obviously the businesses have a very specific goal in mind, and that's to make profits and to move and gain more in the market share. And so we have to go to them and tell them how veterans can do that. And we have time and time again have many cases and examples of success um, across different sectors. We have convening power where we can bring in not only those business uh, community, but we can bring in other entities within the Department of Labor. We can bring in the Department of Defense. We can bring in the Department of Veteran Affairs. And we have a very holistic conversation where we will lay out all the resources that are available to one, help train folks in that workforce, and also how to uh, get them, those companies themselves, actual resources as well to do some of the training if that is what they so want. So the really the thing is, is how do we, to your point, use those dynamic situations and make the most out of it? And that's what we do every day in the uniform. Wow. Really great work you guys are doing. Any last words about the Department of Labor and what you guys are doing this this, uh, this year? Well, as I already mentioned, we have our Hire Vets Medallion program coming up here in the near future. That's going to be on November 9th. Um, I believe uh, people can tune into that virtually. Um, but I'm really excited about some of the great work that we're embarking on. We're going to do a really large customer experience project we're launching soon. Um, as I said, we have this study on veterans that's going to look at them more holistically, not just the economic metrics that we do uh, from the depart- from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, 
But I'm really excited about all the work we're doing, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Employment Navigator and Partnership Pilot Program that we just started back in uh, April, and that's been going really well so far by all accounts. So I'm excited to be doing this work, and I'm glad that you can be here and we can talk about this. This one, in about 10 seconds, tell us about the Employment Navigator. That's a really important point because that's, that's a tool that you can use to find jobs. Tell us this about 10 seconds about what that is. Sure. Uh, very briefly, as military uh, members and their spouses are transitioning away from the military, we do one-on-one career counseling with them as they're walking out the gate. And what we also do is we will connect them to partners in the community to make sure that any additional resources they need, even after they're no longer seeing us, they can get it. Really appreciate your time. That's Julian Purdy, Veterans Affairs Committee. He is the... U.S. Army Reserve NCO and Chief Staff of Veterans Employment and Training Service in the U.S. Department of Labor. Thank you for your time. All right. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.